0: Chapter 22 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 22 The Royal Commission Toward the attempt in this chapter to revive the memory of some of the local incidents connected with Miss Dix's Scotch experiences in 1855, The writer of this biography is under great obligation to Dr. Daniel Hack-Took for a letter dated Hanwell, England, August 1888, embodying his own memories of those exciting days. Other letters, partly of Miss Dix herself, and partly of friends who were eyewitnesses of all that was going on, will follow. Quote, my reminiscences of Miss Dix's visit to this country in 1855, writes Dr. Tuke, during which visit she was for some weeks our guest at York, are exceedingly vivid as to the general impression left upon the memory. But I regret to say that the lapse of time, about three and thirty years, has to some extent obliterated the details interesting and fruitful in result as they were in the cause of the insane which she had so much at heart she was very much out of health and indeed was confined to bed for some days but the indomitable energy with which she pursued her mission was extraordinary She visited most of the institutions for the insane about York, and I remember that on our driving in a hired vehicle to one of them, she showed that her sympathies were not restricted to the insane by remonstrating with the driver for his treatment of the horse. It was during Miss Dix's sojourn at York that she determined to ascertain the condition of the insane in Scotland. That country was justly famed for its excellent chartered asylums, the result of philanthropic endowments, and maintained by the payments of a certain number of higher-class patients. Footnote. I speak of them as a class. I am aware that some were not in a credible state, and that all are at the present time in a vastly improved condition. End footnote. Miss Dix, however, knew full well from her experience of her own country that such might be the case, and yet a great mass of poor lunatics be altogether neglected and shamefully treated. And so it proved. Her intrepid raid upon the dwellings where lunatics and idiots were stowed away, her visits to workhouses and to some asylums in which paupers were confined— confirmed her worst misgivings, and her revelation took many of the Scotch themselves by surprise. It would have been more fitting had members of the medical profession in Scotland ascertained and protested against this deplorable condition of things, and it is not surprising that when this terrible reformer, yet gentle lady, came from the other side of the Atlantic, to set their house in order, the Scotch doctors were disposed to resent the intrusion. To some of these very men it proved, however, a boon, for when an inquiry was instituted, and a lunacy commission was established in Edinburgh, they were placed on the board. At the present day, there is not a doctor in Scotland interested in the welfare of the insane, and in the splendid asylums now in operation in that country, who would not acknowledge the profound debt of gratitude due to Miss Dix for her courage, her pertinacity, and her judicious advice. One amusing and characteristic incident of Miss Dix's exposure of the treatment of the insane in some parts of the country will no doubt be referred to in her biography, The Sudden Departure of the Lord Provost of Edinburgh to London, in order to forestall the American lady's representations to the Home Secretary. Although this was before the racing of rival trains between Edinburgh and London, witnessed at the present moment, August 1888, the two actors in the scene did undertake an exciting race to the English capital, with the result that the lady beat the gentleman, although by a very short space, interviewed the Secretary of State, and produced an impression upon him, too powerful to be removed by the assertions of the Lord Provost. Fresh from her great exertions, she returned to York, much exhausted, but sanguine as to the ultimate success of the mission she had so bravely undertaken. You ask me to indicate the salient features of Miss Dix's character as they struck me when I knew her. It seems to me that what I have now written is really the best answer I can give to your request, but I may add a few words. What she told me of having in the early part of her life intended to live mainly to herself, to enjoy literature and art without any higher aims, and of having discovered that this was a fatal mistake— and resolved to devote her energies to the good of man, seems to me the pivot on which her future career revolved. The lines of one of her countrywomen might seem to have been especially composed to describe the change which came over Miss Dix. I slept and dreamt that life was beauty. I woke and found that life was duty. In complete accord with the same idea, I may mention that on the fly-leaf of her own Bible, presented to me when she left our house, she had written Wordsworth's Ode to Duty. Her long-sustained exertions, undertaken from the highest motives, mark the untiring and irrepressible energy and fortitude which more especially struck me during our personal acquaintance. That these qualities must have exerted enormous influence in inducing others, especially young physicians, to engage in the humane treatment of the insane can easily be understood. The refinement and intrinsic gentleness of mystics had much to do with the esteem and affection entertained for her because they disarmed the criticism and opposition which were not unnaturally excited when a woman entered the public arena, and was expected to commit injudicious and emotional acts, however well-intentioned they might be. But Miss Dix's enthusiasm was based on actual facts and undeniable abuses. While the remedies she proposed were those which commended themselves to the best men engaged in the treatment of the insane in the United States. I will only say, in conclusion, that in whatever other department Miss Dix may have earned the gratitude of mankind, and that of the proper care and humane treatment of the insane not the so-called non-restraint system which she did not accept she ought to be regarded as the patron saint of every hospital for this class established through her instrumentality as an angel of mercy not only in her own but in other lands and therefore held in everlasting remembrance on both sides of the atlantic as one worthy of double honour d Hack Took, Hanwell, August, eighteen eighty eight. In preceding extracts, allusion has more than once been made to the exciting railway race from Edinburgh to London between Miss Dix and the Lord Provost of Edinburgh, each bent on first gaining the ear and prepossessing the mind of the Secretary of State sir george gray the result of the race was one more illustration of napoleon's favorite sayings that the rarest kind of courage is two o'clock in the morning courage and that he had always noticed that these odd 15 minutes determined the fate of the battle the lord provost stopped to have his trunk packed and to journey comfortably by day Miss Dix grasped a handbag and boarded the night train. How much the whole issue of the reform which revolutionized the lunacy legislation of Scotland turned on the 12 hours start thus affected by Miss Dix's lightning swift decision it is of course impossible to say. What important point gained is however certain. The hot haste with which she traveled, secured for her the opportunity for another of those interviews at close quarters, in which her commanding personality reached the culmination of its power. Already has it been seen how one of those memorable interviews, that with Mr. Cyrus Butler of Providence, Rhode Island, secured the foundation of the Butler Asylum. And how another, that with Mr. Thomas Blagden of Washington, D.C., led to the immediate surrender on his part of the magnificent site at present occupied by the Army and Navy Lunatic Asylum. The third is now on the eve between herself and Sir George Gray. Later on, a fourth is to be witnessed in Rome with Pope Pius IX. What depths in the heart were reached in those exceptional hours, and how abiding was the impression wrought, can now be judged only by the momentous results which followed, or, here and there, by a brief expression like that in Mr. Blagden's letter. Quote, Regarding you, as I do as the instrument in the hands of God to secure this very spot for the unfortunates whose best earthly friend you are. I sincerely believe that the Almighty's blessing will not rest on nor abide with those who may place obstacles in your way." Fortunately, there has been preserved a more than ordinarily long letter of Miss Dix herself to her friend Mrs. Samuel Torrey of Boston, Massachusetts, in which the flying trip to London and the great results it led to are circumstantially detailed. The letter is here subjoined. Quote, London, 18 Gloucester Square, March eighth, 1855. My dear friend, I am here only on business, and for a short time at present intending to return to edinburgh in a few days while in edinburgh i had discovered eleven private establishments for the insane to which licenses had been given by the sheriff of midlothian who exercises the function of chief justice in the high court of the county without regard to the special qualifications requisite People of the lowest grade of character, and very ignorant, had been accepted upon their application for liberty to open houses for all classes of patients. The public institutions for the treatment of insanity are good, very good. I have visited all these, namely Dumfries, Marsden, Glasgow, Perth, Dundee, Aberdeen, and Edinburgh, besides thirteen private houses, some of which have several hundred patients. But as I was saying, those at Musselburgh, six miles from Edinburgh, were so very ill-ordered, and the proprietors so irresponsible for all they did or did not do, that I took decisive steps, calling the attention of the Lord Provost, Dr. Trail the chief justices, and other influential citizens to their condition. The law is singularly defective, allowing, without consent of the proprietors, no admission to these places except in the person of the sheriff of Midlothian, who may take a physician of the medical college on his semi-annual visitations. The semi-annual visits of medical men... Employed by the proprietors, were not likely to control the direction of the parties. The law required them to report abuses if abuses existed. Their pecuniary interests urged them to pass them in silence. In fine, the proprietors had the thing all their own way, and they were intent on making money. The sheriff, when I appealed to him as really the sole authority, trifled, jested, and prevaricated. I could not excuse this. The weather was very cold, the poor patients by hundreds suffering. I consulted the justice, three physicians, Mr. Combe and Mr. Mackenzie, Sir Robert Arbuthnot, and several besides. The conclusion was that nothing would do but to demand of the Home Secretary, Sir George Gray, in London, a commission for investigation. But who was to go? One was an invalid. A dozen had urgent professional business. I, why could not I go? said one and another. It was clear to me that if I would see this done at once— which was so much needed, I must go. I looked into my purse, and counted time, and considered my health, for I had not felt so strong for some days as I could desire, but my conscience told me quite distinctly what was my duty. I took then my carpet-bag, and wrapping about me my warm traveling garments, called a cab, and at a quarter past nine p.m., put myself into the express train direct for London, expecting to arrive in twelve hours, four hundred miles. I first telegraphed to Lord Shaftesbury, asking an interview at three p.m. the following day, and naming the King's Cross station as my point of arrival. I did not sleep, but was comfortable. An accident at nine a.m. detained the train till eleven a.m., "'which should have arrived an hour and a half earlier. "'I had never been in London, knew not one location. "'I stepped from the Royal Mail carriage, "'and a gentleman in a moment asked if I was Miss Dix, "'and announced a messenger from Lord Shaftesbury "'accepting my appointment at the C. Office, 19 Whitehall Place. "'I looked at my watch. "'It was only an hour to twelve. I had not time to dress for presentation, took a cab, and asking the distance to Kensington, where I had learned was the residence of the Duke of Argyle, for I could reach that point in an hour, threw off my traveling cloak in the cab for a velvet I had in my hand, folded a cashmere shawl on, and believe I did not look so much amiss as one traveling so far might look. The clock struck twelve. I was at Argyle Lodge on C. Hill, Kensington. The bell was rung. A servant answered. I sent in my card, was introduced, found the Duchess and two others in the library with the Duke, opened my subject, asked of his grace immediate communication on his part in behalf of Scotland with the Home Secretary. An hour and a half settled matters. His grace would call for me at Whitehall Place at three and a half to go to Downing Street. I was to proceed to the former place at once, found myself there at two and a half. Happily, Lord Shaftesbury anticipated his time, and I found all the board in session. We talked the whole subject over, "'settled that no time ought to be lost "'in urging the usually tardy secretary. "'His Grace the Duke arrived "'and reported Sir George Gray summoned to a council "'at Buckingham Palace, but said, "'You shall see him yourself, "'but I shall now meet him at the palace "'and will state what you have said.' "'It was now 4 p.m. "'I could do no more till the following day.' "'so sent for a cab and drove to 38 Gloucester Square "'to my bankers, Mr. Morgan, "'asked for a basin of water "'to wash my neglected face and hands, "'a cup of tea, and bed, "'all of which Mr. Morgan's prompt orders secured. "'In the evening I got a note from His Grace "'saying that Sir George doubted his authority "'to order a commission for Scotland,' that the Lord Advocate must be consulted. This I did not wish, for I knew social and political interests would hinder the right action of Lord Moncrief. In the morning, I drove again to Argyle Lodge. His grace said that Sir George expressed willingness to comply, but hesitated to act. He would see him again. I saw then Lord Shaftesbury, and got forward some affairs respecting the English hospitals. The next day a note from the Duke informed me that the Home Secretary had written to the Lord Advocate at Edinburgh. I took a carriage, and determined to see Sir George myself, drove to Downing Street, sent up my card with a written request for a personal interview in the reception room of the Home Department, "'was ushered up with some state "'and received courteously by his lordship, "'stated my wishes. "'Sir George said he had already consulted the Lord Chancellor, "'and he doubted his power to issue warrants "'without the concurrence of the Lord Advocate, "'to whom I have telegraphed,' added Sir George, "'and who will forthwith come to London. "'He may be here on Monday.' Next I received the thanks of the Home Secretary for my efforts, thanked him in return for his early attention to the subject and unprecedented alacrity in the annals of public affairs here, and proceeded to see Sir James Clark, the Queen's physician. He entered cordially into my plans, and so I waited. Monday the Lord Advocate did not come. Tuesday, still not heard from, nor Wednesday. Thursday he arrived, and sent a note appointing to call the following day. We had a long conference. I got the promise from him that the commission of reform for all Scotland should at once be formed. Sir George Gray had taken orders to that effect, with his concurrence the Lord Chancellor approving. Today I have all business closed. I have two commissions, one of inquiry, one of investigation in Midlothian. This assures, first, reports into the condition of all the insane in Scotland. Next, the entire modification of the lunacy laws, the abrogation of all private establishments, the establishment of two or three new general hospitals, etc my odd time I have spent chiefly in securing the interest and votes of members of parliament for the bill soon to be introduced, and now I go back to Edinburgh to-morrow to report this to parties interested and to rest if I need it, which is more than probable in two weeks. I shall go to Walsington. The seat of Sir Walter Calverley Trevelyan, who has with Lady Trevelyan invited me there, and they will do the honors of Northumberland. I cannot write more now. Yours truly, D. L. Dix. End quote. Two other brief notes of Miss Dix to her friend Mrs. Rathbone of Liverpool. The first expressive of amazement at the opportunities for concealment afforded the private insane asylums of Scotland, and the other indulging in the freest strictures on certain of the Scotch officials, are all that remain of her correspondence from London. Quote, London, February 27th, 1855. Sir George Gray has consulted the Lord Chancellor... And strange as is the fact, it is doubted if any official party in England has the right to authorize the inspection of any private madhouse of whatever capacity in Scotland. The question is now under debate End quote. Quote, london february twenty eighth eighteen fifty five The sheriff is a bad man, wholly despotic and ridicules the entire idea of reform. The procurator fiscal is not, like the sheriff, a dissipated man, but a member and elder of Dr. Guthrie's church, but tied with red tape to the sheriff. The Lord Advocate is crowded with business and is a selfish man, so that I have an odd sort of work on my hands. But ultimately good will result from this, I certainly hold myself much better occupied in doing this work than in strolling about Rome or Florence." End quote. Her task in London thus successfully ended, Miss Dix as soon as possible went back to Scotland to mass farther material for a report to be submitted to the Royal Commission, which should start and keep them on the real scent. By native instinct and years of training, she had long since become master of the art of tracking to their hidden lairs, and dragging out to the light of day the sullenest and most secret shapes of human deceit and cruelty. All in vain was it to seek to throw her off the scent. Keen-sighted and tireless as an American Indian hunter— When once she had struck the trail of duplicity and greed, she followed it relentlessly, through thicket, defile, or swamp, till she had come up with poor wretches, hidden in the cave of despair, to which it led. A sort of terror, as of the terror of vermin before nobler creatures of the hunt, inevitably set in upon the objects of her pursuit— Thence the impression she made on all the friends of reform in Scotland, and thence their insistence that, should she draw back, everything would relapse into the old state of apathy and despair. She, a foreigner and a woman, was besought to go to London to bring the whole issue before the highest tribunal of the United Kingdom simply because it was instinctively felt that no one else could do it with such commanding authority of knowledge and character. Setting to work on the trails open to them by Miss Dix, the members of the Royal Commission soon thoroughly endorsed the fidelity of the revelation of shame and cruelty she had so impressively made. By May 14th, Dr. James Cox, of the Commission, wrote her, We came home yesterday from a hurried raid upon Perth and Dundee, and start tomorrow for Glasgow, Greenock, etc. We have seen enough already to convince us that there is ample field for work before us which cannot fail to bring a glorious harvest. Hitherto, we have scarcely scraped the ground, End quote. Likewise, Dr. David Skay, of the Royal Edinburgh Asylum for the Insane, continually wrote her, expressing his amazement at her power to impress influential people, and insisting that she was still indispensable to the complete triumph of the good work though the immediate personal share of Miss Dix in the matter of reform in Scotland was now in a month or two to end. It is of interest to pursue here the subsequent work of the Royal Commission, as well as to tell the story of the practical legislation in Parliament, which was the result of their investigations. Not before 1857, Almost a year after the return of mystics to the United States, did the commission make its report to parliament. Its radical character, however, when once made public, may be judged from a few extracts. Quote, "It is obvious," says the report, "that an appalling amount of misery prevails throughout Scotland in this respect." When estimating the condition of the insane, not in establishments, it should be remembered that the details furnished by us give only an imperfect representation of the true state of matters. They form only a part of the picture of misery, and had we been able to extend our investigations, it would, we are convinced, have assumed a much darker shade." It is not needful here to go into particulars of the enormities encountered on all sides. The reader of this biography has already gone over precisely parallel details of necessity presented in describing Miss Dix's early work in the United States, that In either country, the same hard-hearted brutality characterized many of the overseers of pauper lunatics is clear enough from the testimony of one of them before the commission, who, after admitting that numbers of the patients, men and women, were stripped at night and huddled together on loose straw in a state of perfect nudity, went on to add, I consider the treatment is proper for them. In short, both as regards licensed houses and unlicensed houses, the report winds up by giving a dismal picture, for as to the former, they are crowded in an extreme degree. Profit is the principal object of the proprietors, and the securities against abuse are very inadequate. And as to the latter, they have been opened as trading concerns for the reception of a certain class of patients who are detained in them without any safeguard whatever against ill treatment and abuse. Quote, the report once fully presented to Parliament, Mr. Ellis, the member for St. Andrews, asked the government what steps they intended to take. charged the scotch authorities with an almost total neglect of the duties which were incumbent on them under the law that their statements were positively untruths and entirely deceptive year after year as to the real state of the lunatics in scotland the member for aberdeen characterized the report of commissioners as one of the most horrifying documents he had ever seen It was a state of things which they could not before have believed to prevail in any civilized country, much less in this country, which made peculiar claims to civilization, and boasted of its religious and humane principles. Distressing as were the cases which he had mentioned, there were others ten times worse remaining behind. So horrible indeed, that he durst not venture to shock the feelings of the house by relating them. Sir George Gray homeopathically diluted the blame of the Board of Supervision of Scotland by showing that the individual responsibility was infinitesimal and could not, therefore, be detected and punished in the way it so richly merited, but promised to introduce a bill, calculated to remove the defects in the law established by the report. The Lord Advocate rejoiced at the publication of the report and the statements of Mr. Ellis from the bottom of his heart, because the state of things has for a long time been a disgrace and a scandal to Scotland. The people of that country, he said, had known that it was a disgrace and a scandal, and he regretted to add that it was not the first time that statements had been made similar to those to which they had just listened. That noble-minded lady, Miss Dix, went to Edinburgh and visited the asylums at Musselburgh. After seeing them, she said there was something wrong, and she wished to be allowed to visit them at the dead of night, when she would not be expected." He had felt a difficulty about giving a permission of that kind to a non-official person, and accordingly she applied to the Home Secretary. The facts were now so clearly proved that if he proposed the very remedy which was rejected in 1848, it would be adopted by both Houses of Parliament without any important opposition. On the second reading, June ninth, 1857. No serious opposition was offered to the bill. Mr. Cohen, member for Edinburgh, said that he had been requested to present a petition signed by the Lord Provost and Magistrates of Edinburgh seeking for delay, but he did not like to incur that responsibility and would therefore support the second reading. Mr. Hope Johnstone member for Dumfrieshire, enforced these remonstrances by stating that he had representations made to him from every quarter in opposition to the appointment of a new board. Mr. Drummond hereupon made an observation greatly to his credit, which deserves to be remembered. He said that the question was not so much what would be the most expensive as what would be the most efficient machinery. There were plenty of representatives of the ratepayers in that house, but no representatives of the lunatics of Scotland. They seemed to have no friends there, while really they were the persons who stood most in need of being represented." Quote. Through these extracts from speeches made in Parliament, the at last fully aroused spirit of that body is clearly revealed. How changed, through the heroic fire of a single woman, the moral temper from the days of 1848, when Lord Rutherford's bill was helplessly swept away before the flood of remonstrances that poured in from ratepayers and interested parties all over Scotland. Now certain of the Scotch members did not dare so much as to present the selfish objections of their constituents. The victory was complete, and August twenty-fifth, 1857, came the passage of the Act 20 and 21st Victoria, C. 71, through which a new epoch was inaugurated in humane and adequate provision for the insane especially the pauper insane of scotland this meant nothing less than the foundation of new and humanely administered asylums in various quarters of the land to the relief of an untold amount of human misery as already stated some considerable time before the final passage of this act miss Dix had returned to the united states And was as zealously as ever at work in her old field. Nonetheless, devoted friends abroad kept her apprised of the steady progress of the good cause. A few extracts from letters of widely differing dates will throw farther local light on this memorable episode in a memorable career. Quote: Edinburgh, June fourth, eighteen fifty seven. Dear Madam, Some days ago I had the pleasure of writing to announce that the Scotch lunacy report had broken the shell and seen the light. We are quite surprised at the sensation the report has produced. Throughout the length and breadth of the land, the press is ringing with it. At first I took what steps I could to direct public attention to the result of our labors, but soon my only fear was that the general clamor would pass beyond bounds. You will see by the proceedings in Parliament that no time is to be lost in bringing forward a remedial measure. Government is wise in this respect. Strike while the iron is hot. This is evidently their maxim, and doubtless if they waited till next session, they would meet with far more opposition." I hope you noticed how cordially Sir George Grey acknowledged in the House of Commons the obligations we are under to you. What the nature of the proposed measure may be is not yet known, but rumor says it is to be an extension of the English Commission to Scotland. With much respect, very faithfully yours, james Cox." Edinburgh, Scotland, June twentieth, 1857 You will have seen from the English newspapers that our report has created considerable sensation and that the Lord Advocate has already introduced a legislative measure into Parliament. Already on every side is heard the din of preparation for resistance. Town councils, county meetings, parochial boards, and the existing large asylums are banding together for this object, all animated with the desire to avoid legal interference. I have thought the public might be made to adopt more humane and less selfish views by showing them what you are doing in America, and how generously the legislatures come to your aid." I have therefore taken the liberty to send to the newspapers an extract from your letter. "Most truly yours, james Cox." End quote. In a letter from Sir james a Clark, physician to the Queen, who had attended Miss Dix during a severe inflammatory attack in London, occurs the following grateful assurance: quote, "Bagshot Park, Surrey, December thirtieth, 1861 Before going farther, I will give you a piece of information which I feel sure will gratify you as the first movement in the improvement which has been effected in Scotland through your exertions. The treatment of the pauper insane in Scotland is now more carefully attended to than in any other part of Great Britain, I may say sincerely yours j a clark" End quote. finally from her fast friend dr tuke came the ensuing expression of congratulations quote, "falmouth cornwall england may 6th 1863 i think you might say to the scotch you are my joy and my crown For they have gone on wonderfully since the American invader aroused them from their lethargy. Sincerely your friend, D. Hack Tuke. End End of chapter twenty two.